Are you looking to advance your technology, develop your skills, work with our network of experts, and get top-notch mentorship? Applications are open for the UCSF Rosamond Rise. Through Rise, we identify promising entrepreneurs from groups that are underrepresented in health tech, such as women, people of color, and LGBTQ individuals, and we connect them with any number of leaders from our UCSF network and beyond. To apply, please visit rosamondinstitute.org slash programs slash rise. Applications close on February 9th. Know who you are and what you are. The marketing message has to be based on substance. It has to be based on ideally IP, right? Because that's a huge barrier. That's sustainable. It cannot be the marketing F-bomb fluff uh, because you base it on nothing. It's, it's worth nothing. No one's going to... You have to stand behind it. So be bold, be clear, have substance, shout it from the rooftops. You don't have thousands of people in the field to tell the story for you. Got to be a little bit louder. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Health tech is not just about science, it's also about communications. As a company, you have a story to tell. And our podcast guest today, Maureen Schaefer, might just teach you how to tell your story well enough so people really sit up and listen. Maureen is the founder and CEO of Mingletoe and a sales expert in the field of health tech. As CEO, she engineers winning marketing strategies for health tech companies. She's also served in marketing leadership positions at Converge Medical, Atricure, and Fluenix Medical. And today, she shares some of her experience with me to help entrepreneurs like you make your story great. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Maureen. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Christine. It's a pleasure. I'm so excited to have you. I mean, we've known each other for many, many years. And who would have thought that we would do podcasts? I think when we met, there's no such thing as podcasts. (laughs) And I thought this is also an opportunity for us to share a lot of what you know in terms of marketing and messaging in the healthcare space. But before we start, I thought it would be good uh, for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background, what drew you to this field and why healthcare and how do you make that decision? Uh, Big questions. (laughs) All right. So what drew me into this field and kind of why, why healthcare? Uh, When I was, when I was growing up, I took a test in eighth grade that said I should be a physician or a mechanic. (laughs) And I think, that's that was telling because I loved medicine and human physiology and anatomy um, as much as I love kind of building things in my dad's workbench. And so when I was in high school, uh, I found out about the field of biomedical engineering. And that was, I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I went to school for biomedical engineering. And then coming out of it and working at Cordis, found out that what I really missed was being close to medicine and the physicians and that marketing and product management at that point in time was really where 
that happened. You could be this hub of talking to the physicians and sales and customers and patients and bringing, translating that information internally to R&D manufacturing, et cetera. And so, um, so I jumped into marketing after one year of doing engineering. And then since then, you always stay in marketing and put aside your engineering hat. Yes and no. So yes, my job, my functional role was marketing. Uh, however, I used a lot of the kind of process-driven um, kind of thought processes that I learned in engineering to apply to marketing, apply to sales, etc. So um, I have kind of the rectilinear mind and then engineering mind. And then when I need to shift to kind of the creative thinking, I take a break, I go for a walk for 15 minutes, I do something for 15 minutes, and then I jump into the creative side, like switching, switching tracks. <laughs> I think the walk might, might be helpful. That's good uh, for me to know. Um, so you have a marketing role in many growing company, a large company. What are the common pitfalls that when somebody develops a technology and thinking about marketing and what are the things that you learn from that experience that actually is a smart marketing that maybe other people can learn? Uh, I've had a few years, so about 30 years in medical devices. And so I've learned a lot along the way. Um, I think overall, uh, what I've learned is that the customer, uh, which marketing often represents the voice of the customer within the company, uh, ideally should start at the, when the company starts. So, um, so it's a very helpful perspective to have kind of engineering R&D, looking at it from an engineering perspective and having someone from marketing or product management looking at it from the customer perspective. And I think what's missed there often is that the customer is, uh, there are a lot of customers. If you want to be successful in med device, med tech, digital therapeutics, right, digital health space, so kind of in stereotypical kind of medical device, you have the, the patient who is, right, is purchasing healthcare services. You have often the provider uh, providing the service, but usually not buying it or paying for it. You have increasingly hospital systems, for example, or IDNs uh, buying the technology and then payers kind of reimbursing that idea, right? If you've, set, if you've set it up right. And so I think it becomes critically important to understand all of those pieces of that and uh, not only clinically what it needs to do, also understand economically how that benefits, how you're setting it up, where it's being done, what's being done, how economically that can benefit uh, the healthcare consumer, the healthcare provider, the healthcare system, and the healthcare payer. So I think it, it's complicated. Uh, I think the best thing they can do is start it as early as they can possibly fund that role and to look at broadly all of those players uh, in the game and clinical and economic incentives. It seems like a lot, right? And uh, you know, just thinking about, uh, I was just came back from Singapore that I found that they are really good in 
consumer marketing, like they put like fun marketing for McDonald's. You can scream for ice cream and then ice cream showed up and, you know, it just draw a lot of young people. But then they are the one who pay for the ice cream. They come. And so that's, and of course they have huge marketing dollar. But if you're a startup, you have to think all these people that you have to understand and you're probably, your marketing budget is not huge. Never. How do you compensate? <laughs> I've never seen a huge marketing budget that are enough, right? You always want more. So yeah, how, how would you advise startup when they need to know all these? And usually, you know, two founders or three, and they have to figure all that out. Uh, I think I think there are two paths there, right? One is to hire someone who is a senior enough kind of product, like senior product manager who's had you know a handful of ten years of experience or so, um, who understands kind of broadly how to approach this and how to mine this information, this necessary information, um, and, and the people involved in it and understand what they're saying, and what they need. I think. Uh, the other thing that a lot of people do is, um, I mean, I have my company, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now for 10 years, uh, focused on engineering messaging strategy for startup and tech startups specifically. And so I find that a lot of them need some help consistently uh, throughout their, you know, two, three, first two or three years before they're ready to bring in kind of a full-time Mm-hmm. VP of marketing or VP of sales and marketing. And so I think they're, they're kind of two different paths. Have, find someone kind of not super junior, but not super um, senior, not very senior, uh, somewhere kind of down the middle, or hire a consultant who can spend 10 hours a month kind of helping you work through these things and advising you over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So do you have, uh, say, like a case study that you've done? in the past that you can share and how you approach it and what are the framework that you use? Uh, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, I'll use one of my kind of direct experiences. Uh, so I was at a company called Atricure, still exists. <laughs> and uh, it was early days when I showed up. There were, I think, two CDs of uh, cases, surgeon cases, uh, and one brochure. And the booth looked like like Lincoln Logs, like Tinker Toys, and had, I kid you not, like a royal blue shake carpet in the booth. And so we were starting, right? We're starting very early. We're starting very early. The company had some sales, right, under their wings, a little bit of wind in their sales. And they were competing much like many of my startup clients and much like many startups in general are competing. Uh, one of the, com- two of the competitors were the global billion dollar kind of medical device companies. And the situation we were in is that they were telling us, st- they thought, oh, we like the story Atricure is telling. So we're going to tell the same, a similar story. So I say they kind of hijacked our energy source and how we named it. And when I came on board, I asked three cardiac surgeon friends of mine, you know, who's the market leader in this specific area? And they all said, they named one of the billion dollar players. 
The third one said, I know you, so I think it's this company, but I, I think you're going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm like, so you said, and I'm like, you are wrong. Actually, it's Atricure is market leader in this specific area. I think what happens, I say that to say, and so then we went through a process of figuring out how to differentiate from the, our largest competitor, how we needed to tell the story, figuring out kind of what, what space, what mountain, what we could own. We could own, we could capture and have long-term sustainable advantage long-term sustainable barrier to entry, barriers to entry. And we landed on that and I find, and we had great success, so much so that the CEO of the global billion-dollar device company was at a, a meeting with one of our, with our board chair. And we went to the show and kind of put this out there, all of this out there, some very strong, clear marketing and uh, the competitive CEO said, wow, you really dropped a bomb on us. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I say that because it is so important as a startup, you can't compete the way the, the, big, the big companies do. You don't have the dollars, you don't have the resources. You have to think about it very, very differently, almost like flanking. You, what do startups have? They're fast. They're agile or nimble, flexible, whichever adjective you'd like to use. And they win based on being, being able to innovate quickly. Uh, and that is how they get ahead and stay ahead of the kind of billion-dollar global behemoths. Um, that's also how they win relative to any kind of upstarts. If they can get going fast and move very quickly and stay really close to the customer and shout it from the rooftops. This is not a time for humility. It's not a time for humility. It's time. It's a little bit of the, like the loud and proud moments um, from a startup because you have to overcome their hundreds or thousands of salespeople in the field. You have to overcome the millions of dollars they have to spend um, in marketing and in particularly in sales. And so I think startups need to really think... How can I tell this story tell a story that's so compelling, like first, and then where can I go and how can I maximize the dollars I have at hand? And so it requires becoming really creative about it. Um, so for example, I'll keep with the same example. Uh, we decided. Uh, I love talk, going and talking to R&D and engineering and asking how they do testing. There's so much like secret sauce there for marketers and startups. And I found that we did this one test on uh, meat to show ablation lines. And the way ours worked versus the way this key competitors work showed completely, once you dissected the meat, you just did these ablation lines really quickly, you could see all of the advantages all the benefits of our product. And so we created a little secret area of the booth. We had people sign NDAs. We had them put on lab coats. We made like a big deal out of it. And we brought them in and we had side-by-sides that they did. We were like ripping down new competitive product out of the sterile, right? Out of the tie bag. And having them use them side-by-side and dissect them and see for themselves. Like that's, that's kind of standing behind 
what you're saying? Like how strongly can you stand behind what you're saying, how you're different, your value prop, you know, whatever you want to call it at this point in time. Um, and that's what we did. And that just disarmed. The next, a year later at the trade show, both of those billion dollar competitors had secret areas of the booth with side by sides. So, right. So, but speed startups have to, they succeed in marketing sales, R and D on doing the best at speed. Even that on the marketing side, I guess they have to be bold. Be bold. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And I think, I mean, I'm not a marketer and sometimes I notice that I felt like, well, why do we have to tell the world, the world will find out about us and obviously that is not a good marketing strategy. And I guess, you know, how, you know, how do you balance so that it doesn't sound that you're just all about the rah-rah or the big marketing, but, but you want to see a substance. I don't know. Maybe it's also personality. Maybe that's why I'm not a marketer. (laughs) I think that um, I call fluff the marketing F-bomb. Uh, that is what you want to avoid at all costs. So the mar- the market, the message you build to deliver to the market um, has to be built on strong ground, right? It's like building a house. Mm-hmm. You have to have a really compelling product, right? You, you have to have um, compelling kind of channels through which you can deliver that message be them, be it social media or specific ad channels or, you know, salespeople in the case of a lot of med device companies. Um, and you, how should I say this? It has to be built. It's like building a house. You have to have a strong foundation. You have to build it on substance. So for example, I'm going to go back to that same example again. Uh, it's an, it's an easy one and it's completely public. And, mm-hmm. uh, is that where we were losing was the competitor, even though we're the market leader, people thought we weren't. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So we had to come and show up like a market leader would show up. We had to look like a market leader, act like a market leader, you know, stand behind what we were saying. So what we did was we rebranded the energy source. So the energy source was called bipolar. Mm-hmm. And all the key benefits of our product um, were embedded in how we delivered the energy to the tissue. And so we ended up, the way the energy was delivered, you know, bipolar just means between two poles, right? Delivered between two poles. And in this case, they're straight electrode lines, right? They were being approximated and brought together and delivering the energy between these two poles. So, uh, 
But we delivered, they had a scissor closure, so they weren't delivering it equally pressure-wise. The pressure wasn't equal from kind of heel to toe, if you will. Um, whereas ours was a parallel closure, so the energy was delivered equally from one end to the other. We also had a very specific algorithm and how the how it detected the thickness of tissue and how it ensured that it was a created complete ablation scar all the way through. Um, and there was one other piece to that. I can't recall at this point in time. And so we ended up renaming it and calling it transpolar energy. Mm. And I had pushback, as you would expect. There was one cardiac surgeon who was like, Marine, that doesn't exist. <laughs> it is, that's not science. That's not scientifically correct. That it doesn't exist as an energy source. And I said, I understand that and that's true, but we can't compete by saying we're the better bipolar, like I can't, <laughs> how we're better than bipolar versus the other one. Like that's not a strong message. We have to differentiate, be super clear, super compelling. And so we ended up calling it transpolar because it, um, it goes between, because it uh, connects the poles, like the, it goes along the entire pole. So delivers energy along the entire length of the pole equally. It creates what they call like a transmural kind of scar, like all the way through the tissue scar. And so then we came up with things like, do you know where your energy is? Because we used, oh, here we go. We used kind of dry ablation and the key competitor used irrigation, aka water on a non-flat human and anatomical surface to try to deliver energy. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. So we did like, do you know where your energy is? And like, keep it between the poles and go transpolar. And uh, secret bonus, read your competitors' instructions for use. The marketing people do not write that. The legal and regulatory people write that. And every caution, every warning, all the reality is in the instructions for use. Then you can see all their weaknesses. And that's what we did. And then we made videos about it. And put it up at our, our booth. It was the biggest trade show of the year. Um, and, and put it up at that booth. So I'd say, know who you are and what you are. The marketing message has to be based on substance. It has to be based on, ideally, IP, right? Because that's a huge barrier. That's sustainable. It cannot be the marketing F-bomb fluff. Uh, because you base it on nothing. It's, it's worth nothing. No one's going to... You have to stand behind it. So be bold, be clear, have substance, shout it from the rooftops. You don't have thousands of people in the field to tell the story for you. Got to be a little bit louder. So is that what behavior like if you're the market leader that you're willing to shout it from the rooftop? Yeah, I think if you're, you know, if you're the, if you're the, whether you're the market leader um, as a startup or whether you're just a startup aspiring to be the market leader, you have to be super clear about to whom you're selling, what they're actually buying, not your device. What are they buying? Are they buying lower recurrence rates in their patients? Are they buying improved survival in their patients? Are they buying better, you know, mental health, less anxiety in their, you know, you have to know what they're really buying and what they really want. Um, and 
who your real target customers are, understand that, understand the flow of money. Um, and then and only and understand the IP. And after you've lined all that up and lined up all the dollars and numbers and you understand the IP, then you can create, come up with your kind of clear, compelling, competitive message. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, like I mentioned way earlier, that's now there's a podcast. Long time ago, there's no such thing as social media. And how do you layer that into the whole that's, marketing? Yeah, but it's a great question as to how you layer all these new things, new channels, really, right, uh, into, into the marketing world. So I think I'll go back to you have to know who you're, who do you want to talk to? Who are you trying to deliver your message to? And based on that, where are they? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they at certain trade shows? Um, are there certain newsletters that are sent out by certain societies that target these people? Where are these people? What's your message? And how can you most powerfully deliver it um, and not dilute it? So you, you do not need to be on all social media. If, you're, if your primary purchasers are healthcare systems, they're not their business profiles aren't on Facebook for the most part, <laughs> right? So some of them are on Twitter. A lot of them are on LinkedIn. Uh, and then there are key meetings that these health systems and the key people at those health systems attend. What are those? Where are they? Are you, do you have something that's really more about economic benefit? Then maybe you should look to see, well, hey, where are the CFOs going? If it's really something where you can drive volume into the hospital, um, an incremental volume, and that has an economic benefit, maybe you should be looking to where the healthcare system CEOs are, or where the hospital CEOs are going. So, or in a lot of cases now with digital therapeutics, maybe you're talking to employers or payers. Where are they? Like on online, where are they? And offline, where are they? And where can you most effectively reach them? And what, whatever you do, don't, don't spread, say, hey, we need to be at all these, for example, trade shows, mm-hmm. virtually or otherwise. Um, pick a few and do them well. Pick a few and do them really well and develop relationships there. So it's like the whole idea about uh, FOMO shit <laughs> is completely squashed. Yes, uh, 100%. 100% because you can't, as a small company, you, as a startup, you don't have the budget or the personnel to do a lot of things well. You can pick a couple of things, a couple of avenues, a couple of channels and do them well. Mm-hmm. And do them very, very well. And once those get rolling, if you want to add another one on, you have, you've made the, um, put forth the proof. Uh, as to how you can best drive revenue for the company, then, you know, hire a person or a consultant or, a, you know, company and have them, you know, add a resource and then add doing those things. Don't think you need to be everything to everyone or do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. So another question. You've done all this marketing. I'm sure you've gone through like, oh, I should not have done it this way. Now I've learned. 
that I'm not, you know, then you always remember mm-hmm. the last time it was a mistake. It's not just you as a person, but it's that usually it's a team, a decision of the team, right? And they think about this is the direction it needs to be because X, Y, Z, and then turn out to be not the right decision. Uh, can you share with us what that is and that you, now you can stay away from every time? It's like, oh, this is the classic. I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll back to kind of my product management days. Um, one of the first lessons I learned in product management was not to assume anything. And by that, let me be more specific. Uh, we were launching a new endomyocardial biopsy forceps when I was at Cordis. And we're making a big deal about the endomyocardial, the cups that took the biopsy. You know, they were going to be harder and they were like a higher Rockwell. And they were going sharper, thinner and sharper. And they're going to take these like really beautiful, clean endomyocardial biopsies. And I had people try it and use it on the table and talk to a whole lot of cardiologists about it. I'm like, this is great. We have what we need. We went to Mark. They made all the packaging. They were in blister trays, you know, with the shape. They went out and the curvature of the biopsy forceps was wrong. I never asked. I didn't know we changed it. And all of a sudden, people can't get to the, <laughs> to the wall the way they wanted to to get their biopsy. So who cares if the... It's sharper and all the rest of it because you can't even get there. It's the curve's wrong. So that was a huge wake-up call to me, probably all the rework that had to be involved in all the cost that had to be scrapped with all these blister trays and the rework of all these. Luckily, they could be reshaped get mm-hmm. our new packaging. So I, what I learned from that was don't assume anything. Make sure that the first round, let's say you're developing a new product, right? And you done all the research and you understand what needs to happen, then you have your first prototype. You take it or drawings of it or whatever you might have and you you do your kind of rounds with people and ask them or focus groups. And then you have a more functional product. Then you take that around. When you have an actual functioning prototype, you build whatever it is you need to build that is kind of an in vitro setup that mimics everything that they will encounter when they're actually doing it. And you have them do it in a group, you know, in a group at the same time, watching each other. And one, watching each other, they're going to notice things that they wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, Two, in using it, they'll be able to say things like, um, so one company I had done a lot of testing with very high... Uh, ribbed um, preclinical, uh, let's say, subjects. And so when they got to humans, we don't have big barrel chested mostly, lots of space between our ribs and our heart. Mm-hmm. And things became a lot more challenging. So I learned to like step wise and ask all the questions and make sure they had their hands on this thing and as simulated as I possibly could to real life by the end of the prototyping before we designed, before we made the design freeze decision. And that, then we found out all sorts of little nuancey things that they never would have mentioned to us otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I, I use that, that like moving forward 
And there were times when, even when I had huge pushback about, is this taking too long? You already asked them these questions. Why are you doing this again? Why are you, why do you have to bring them together in a group? That's expensive. Every time we learn things we didn't know, every time it's prevention's worth a pound of cure, right? Ounce prevention worth a pound of cure. And every time we learn things and then we either, what I say, I don't know who first said this, but you pay now or you pay more later, (laughs) (laughs) right? So let's pay now and take a month and do this kind of extra work that we don't think we need. And if we don't need anything to change, great, forward, you know, forward ho. Um, If we do, we cut it now, not once we've launched the product. Right. And impaired our credibility, wasted our time. You know, from a market, as a marketing person, wasted our reputation with sales, being the reputation with sales and customers. That is, yeah. So speed, well, right? Mm-hmm. Speed with quality. Yeah. No, I think because you're saying being a startup, that's nimble. And I think sometimes they push for speed for the reason that, you know, every time is money. So... Sometimes you, somebody has to kind of put a hit strong, like draw this, the lines, like we need to check all these. Right. And if it's something, you know, if it's a class one device, that's one thing, right? But if it's a class two or three in the US, if you're running clinical studies, if you're doing ID studies, if you're running clinical studies before you're trying to put in for a CE, there's so much huge amounts of money, escalation in money spent, right, for the studies, for regulatory submission, you know, to build up inventory. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the big money. Right. That's the big money. So catch it early. Make sure, you, you've, make sure you've simulated it as close to real life as humanly possible. So with your story about that uh, biopsy, the curvature, uh, curve, different size, you have given it or sold it to a customer? And then how do you explain that? <laughs> I'm like, whoops, that's a wrong curvature. Yeah, what, ha- what happened was it was launched, sales called marketing and R&D and was like, what the heck? This doesn't work. The curvature is wrong. And I mean, that was, that was on me. That was my fault. That was my job as a product manager to know that, to specify that to R&D, to say what it, you know, to be clear about what it needed to be. And I didn't do it. And it cost all the departments a lot of time, money and effort in sales, right, as well, um, to have to say, we're working on it, right? Then we're in like fix and repair mode, Mm -hmm. you know, manufacturing, Packaging, engineering, designing new packages and rushing things. Manufacturing's trying to rush things. Um, and everybody hates you. Over time. It is not a pleasant. I personally, it is not a pleasant place to be to realize that that was my that was my job, my role, and I didn't do it. So um, I developed right. Well, all we can do, we're all going to make mistakes. I tell my son, make mistakes every day. It's what you do about it that matters, it's you are going to make them. And so what I make sure is that I then develop processes to prevent that in the future. 
that I do it differently in the future. Um, last question before we are out, but this is more like a fun question. Now looking at all the product marketing out there, which one, the one that caught your eyes that you thought that was a smart marketing? Oh, wow. I think in, in medical device, it is, it's challenging, right? It's challenging. Um, as we just spoke about at the beginning of this call, because uh, to navigate the regulatory piece and be bold and be strong. And uh, there, are many, there are many ways to do that. Again, with the start early, have conversations, explain what you're trying to do um, to regulatory and figure it out together. Uh, and then kind of work through a similar process like manufacturing, right? With design freeze and such. Uh, I can't think of one... It's a great question. I can't think of one off the top of my head that's really stood out to me recently. Mm-hmm. Um, from from a marketing standpoint, um, I think what I will say generally is med device tends to be very serious, right? We're 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 trying to let's say cure disease or ameliorate certain diseases, right? Certain symptomologies around the disease, certain problems associated with certain disease states or groups of patients or populations of patients. And I think sometimes we forget that uh, there's, there's a lot of serious messages. I'm just thinking I was, most recent trade show I was at was uh, ANS um, in end of April, end of April of 2022. And I'm thinking, I'm like scanning, I'm scanning the trade show hall while you ask me the question. Um, but they're all very, they're all very serious, right? They're all very serious. They're all very clinical. Do you think, like you're saying about be bold, so maybe that's an opportunity or maybe nobody cared to touch that because... I do think it's an opportunity to be human. Um, I think that it's an opportunity to be real I think physicians and the people who run healthcare systems and patients, right? I mean, it, clinical work is serious. Med, med device, med tech, digital therapeutics are serious. But I think we're, you know, I know, I know that we're all human too. And so I think you can have a little fun and a little humor. And I think in large part, a lot of us shy away from that. It's a risk because when you make a humor, because some people might take it differently. And mm-hmm. one thing that's a risk that maybe even startup don't want to take. <laughs> true, true, true. I think there are ways to use a, like a little bit. Um, and I think what's important is cognitively, humor is very memorable. Mm-hmm. Humor makes the message more memorable. And I think med device could really benefit by I'm not talking about laugh tracks and stand-up comedy here. Right. But a little, you know, double entendres, right? Kind of analogies to unusual, you know, mm-hmm. unsuspecting things, things you wouldn't expect them to compare things to. I think there are ways to make it a little bit more human. Like we think about the best social media, the people, the best brands on social media, they have a perspective and they're also real. They're more informal. Mm-hmm. They're, they have a bit of humor. Right. Um, they poke a bit of fun. Uh, 
they, um, yeah, they're, they're having fun doing it. Um, my one example I'll give you, and I don't have the specifics for it, is um, my, my son, who's 12, shared uh, this TikTok challenge with me. And it was one company put something up and said something about the other company and said, I bet, and it was one of their competitors, I bet this other company won't be whatever, bold enough or brave enough or whatever enough to do this. And then the other company did and then challenged another. I mean, these are huge, huge billion dollar global brands. And then the next one challenged the next one and challenged and it became this like viral. Right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, could I see a med device company being like, oh yeah, we're going to do this TikTok challenge and then we're going to challenge some other med device, right? So, but I think we need to be serious about it, but I think we also need to be human about it. I think whoever can figure that out will uh, win the contest. So there you go. So I, I'll, I'll put that out as kind of a, a challenge. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, for sharing all this insight. Thank you for having me, Christine. It was a, it was a delight and I always love talking to you. Yeah, that's him. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.